Hi there, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. As always, I am joined by Sam, um, agnostic atheist Sam, he self-identifies as. And also today we are joined again by Helen, uh, or Christian Helen. We're going to use names for everyone. Um, so we're together here, and I am somewhere wandering in the mist, Dave. So today we are going to be chatting over the concept of what is a Christian, um, because Obviously, Sam is in a situation where he is he's lost his faith. He's no longer a Christian. And often you hear a response from people who are still Christians about people who have lost their, lost their faith that they were never a Christian to begin with, which raises the question, well, then what is a Christian? Um, and from our, my experience, at least when I've been in church circles um, and church, is the definition of what a Christian is and what d- denotes someone being saved um, varies a lot. Um, and so... We thought it'd be really interesting to look at what Christianity was in the Bible, uh, what Christianity was throughout time. Obviously, we're not going to stop at every point in time. And then what Christianity is now and how is someone a Christian? Like, What makes someone Christian compared to someone who's believed in God or angels or spirits? When does someone become a Christian, a proper Jesus following person who is saved and going to heaven or whatever one language you want to use? So that is the idea. So um, without further ado, we're going to launch into that. So I'm just going to pick on Sam first as, uh, well, it's more fun, Sam. So what that question to you, Sam, let's, let's define Christianity. Thanks, man. It's like total deep end stuff, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah, no excuses. We're just dropping it straight in, um, just kind of kicking and screaming into definitions. Um, like, like when you're little and you just get chucked in the deep end by your brothers. It's, uh, it's the way it goes down. Watch me flail around and then drown. Like we are, we went too far. We went too far. Um, okay, so Christianity, I guess, for me, um, has always meant Christ follower. Um, you know, I know quite a lot about the early church and quite a lot about um, kind of current modern day church, but not tons about church throughout history. I know bits and pieces, but not loads. And for me, the kind of the main theme seems to be follower of Christ, um, someone who believes that Jesus. Well, if you look at the early disciples, they believe that Jesus lived died rose again and was accepted by god through that through that resurrection um and now they can enter into a relationship with god so they're almost like um it's almost like people become tabernacles of god's presence so they're able to then be filled with god's presence and be almost like temples or tabernacles upon the earth so I guess that's what I would argue the New Testament's claiming Christianity is in terms of people who believe in Christ. But I guess the term Christianity is a later addition. Uh, I don't think the disciples thought they were separate from Judaism rather than living in the fulfillment of Judaism. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what Helen thinks about the term Christianity. She's obviously, obviously called Christian Helen, so she must have some idea. Yeah, that is on my birth certificate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'd say pretty much the same thing um, in terms of, yeah, follower of Jesus or like someone who believes that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour to get the, you know, Christian jargon in there. Um, but that, that would be my definition. So that's that's interesting. So yeah, a follower of, follower of Jesus, because this is where it, it potentially throws up loads of uh, controversy, I suppose, because you get plenty of people even today huge variation in the opinion of what following jesus is um so you've got hardcore right-wing fundamentalist christians in the united states 
who believe that following Jesus is very different to left-wing liberal, well, if you're in America, but left-wing socialist-leaning Christians in other parts of the world. Um, and there's a huge variation in what is defined as a Jesus follower. Um, and it's interesting trying to marry those two together and decide, like, where is a middle ground? Is there a middle ground? Um, can you have two very polar aspects of the same faith? And and what makes what brings them together and then what forces them apart, if that makes sense? And the other aspect is that Mormons would say they are Jesus followers, but Christians would say that Mormons are not Jesus followers. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses, another group, um, who would they would claim to be Jesus followers, yet, um, or in, in a sense, yet that lots of mainstream Christians would claim they're not. So that's an interesting tension here that we have this. Yeah, I would agree with your definitions that it is someone who followed Jesus, but then sort of taking a step further, what does that actually mean? Um, just to add on that, I think there's also a, another group of people that call themselves Christians who I kind of feel like are cultural Christians in that they don't want to commit to not having a faith. They've been brought up in like a roughly, you know, they may have gone to church at Easter thing, but it doesn't really necessarily change the way they live their life, but would tick that box on a form. And I think that's a different thing as well, which is also, as you would say, Dave, interesting. I think as well, you look at the... Early disciples, obviously, we've only got the New Testament really as kind of historic historical manuscripts of what they did. But they, when they when they would say that they are followers of Jesus, um, they were literally following what they saw Jesus do and what they believed Jesus said, uh, which arguably could be different to what we have written within our New Testament. So it's you know it's even like for for us today, we would say we're, we're following the commandments of Jesus within the Word being the bible as a whole but mainly the new testament and kind of how paul expounds that and a few others expand in the new testament because that's what we'd be following is the principles and ideologies laid down by this figure jesus um, but obviously the early disciples would have believed and probably acted in slightly different ways because they were they were the first people to actually live out that kind of um what does it mean to turn the cheek what does it mean to you know, to heal people like this is all kind of new stuff right so they were definitely playing with stuff they'd never experienced before. So if even for those people, it was like following Jesus was a, a completely different thing or at least very different thing to, to how we'd see it today. Which, um, yeah, is an interesting point, isn't it? So if you read, so if you read, we've talked about this before, but Acts 2.24 and 4.24, um, the two accounts of, and they're all together as one and shed all the belongings and no one was without need. That's like one of the few actual descriptions of Christians in the Bible, in the sense of a group of people. Like, obviously, you follow Paul and Peter and all sorts throughout Acts. Um, but the actual description of the collective is those two examples in the Bible and then references to the church in Paul's letters. And so that's a very different description to what we would describe now as church and Christians. Um, but also, if you look at, um, I, I'm gonna, probably going to pronounce this wrong, but Eusebius or as a Eusebius, um, there's an account of so all the accounts of early Christians. So it's sort of between 100 AD and 300 AD. There's all the um, accounts from um, like Roman historians or Roman uh, governors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, and early Christian writers. Um, and the description of Christians again is is probably quite different to what we see now. So there's descriptions of uh, Christians were people who regularly gave everything away to their own detriment. So if someone was hungry, the others would be hungry to feed them. Uh, there would be people who went and looked after 
orphan children, which was unheard of. Um, they were a group of people who, this is the weirdest one for our culture, is the fact that if a baby died early, they celebrated because it meant that the baby didn't have to live in this broken world. They celebrated when people died because it meant that they got to be with Jesus, um, which you know, all those, just a few things there are, are very different to what we see now. Um, and so I imagine their perspective of what Christianity is, they would probably look at Christianity nowadays um, and throughout history and, and be maybe a bit confused by it. And so so to to bring it sort of back to now, because it's well on most of our experiences, obviously, actually, no, not most of it. All of our experience is now because that would be really weird if we had experience of 500 years ago. Um, what I, I said right at the beginning there is I've, I've seen churches uh, claim someone is a Christian when arguably they're not. So, for example, in the church I used to go to, um, their designation of a salvation that they used to count and record as a success, success measure was hands up on a Sunday. And that's quite common in Christian world. It's like if you put your hand up on a Sunday, you're saved, um, which I was always very uncomfortable with. And I still think is a bit weird. Um, but what, what, what's what your two viewpoint on that? Well, for me, I think it's a, a heart thing. And I don't think you can really tell if someone's had a heart change like genuine i want to change the way i live my life in order to follow jesus by whether or not they've lifted up their hand i mean they might lift up their hand because they've done that or they might not so i think yeah i i find the whole concept of counting counting salvations people being saved a bit weird generally um but i don't think that that would be a good measure to measure it if you were looking for one but I'm not really. I'm kind of okay with not knowing how many people become Christian on a Sunday. Yeah, I guess as well you would. I say using people, not not you, Helen. And um, you you would potentially see the early church within a current modern day church watching people raise their hands to accept Christ is kind of a really weird thing. Like that didn't happen. <laughs> um, you know, back in, in Jesus' time or, you know, just before it just started, it, it was much more about, you know, you'd, you'd have these, um, I think they're called uh, proselytes, something like that. The the people who aren't Jewish who get welcomed into the Jewish family. So, for instance, you see in one of the early chapters of Acts, um, oh gosh, I can't remember who it is now, sir, someone is talking to the eunuch uh, in his chariot, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, anyway, the, that eunuch is reading from the uh, Old Testament, obviously, back then, just the Only Testament. Um, and he's asking questions about Isaiah. So he's reading from Isaiah, um, potentially the whole Old Testament, but definitely Isaiah, and asking questions. And this person is is someone who is now within the Jewish family, right? So they've been circumcised. They are living within Judaism. They've been to the temple to worship. They can't ever become a complete Jew um, or a full Jew, I guess you could say. They, they were always going to be outside, but they're still included in... Kind of God's God's people, so it's got a complete lifestyle change, a complete way of identity and shift in, in mindset. Whereas I think today, you know, you put your hand up in a church, what actually changes about your lifestyle? Um, I, I would argue very little. Maybe mentally things might shift, and maybe you might end up thinking you need to give some more money to people, need to be praying, or like little kind of almost personal mental health things might shift. But apart from that, not a lot changes. Whereas you know back 1 AD a lot would change if you decided to go and join a one of the various sects from before Jesus' time who thought they were messianic sects or anything like you would be 
you'd be killed for your belief you would be an outcast to a lot of people you'd be heroes to a lot of people like lots changed from from when you accepted something so it's just very different worlds so that's an interesting one um because you said that helen is a heart thing and i'm not sure if you can tell um oh you said tell from her raising hands so i'm not gonna try not to misquote you um but yeah that's an interesting thing and it's, it's what i said and where we've got to now um i said before is i never really saw a huge amount of change in people who became christians and so i've always wondered and including myself were they ever are they etc christians because surely it should lead to a life change and i wonder um is the is the designation of being a christian is something that radically alters your life um I don't mean that, like you can get radical life tra- transformations, which are awful. Um, but I mean more in the sense of, yeah, would should should a Christian be someone who's who has radically changed? We spoke when we spoke about money. Um, should someone's perspective and attitude towards money radically change? Should it the attitude towards the poor and those around them and their neighbours and their friends? Um, so yeah, I wonder is, is that a good way of saying or telling or at least indicating yeah i mean my answer to all of those things is yes i think if we're talking about the you know biblical following of christ then absolutely your life should look different um, i think sometimes it, it and i think it does look very different but it just depends on which angle you're looking at it like i, I totally get what you guys are saying um and I think people should be changed more for sure. And I think people should be doing more, living more radically and more like by faith in that like exciting way that happens in acts and like through various people in history, it has, has happened. So I think, you know, as a church generally, we're a bit like spiritually dead in that people aren't being radically and incredibly changed but i don't think it doesn't happen and i think that is what you should look for if you're looking to count how many people have been saved as we know it's all about counting that's all we we want the numbers um sam that's an interesting one so you're looking back now um from where you are now do you think you were actually a christian um not in a oh you were never a christian because now you don't believe and therefore you were never truly saved way but generally looking back do you think your your life etc show that you're actually a christian or were you just following because you were raised a christian were you just following what you're expected to do or do you think you you genuinely genuinely believe do you see what i mean i'm not saying you didn't believe do you see the difference i'm trying to get at yeah almost whether i kind of fell into it and kind of lived it or whether i realized that there was something here to it and made some active decisions to live out the thing that i believed i was that kind of what you're getting at yeah yeah so do you feel looking back now that yeah was it true belief and do you view yourself truly as a follower of Jesus or looking back do you think you were yeah just simply following what was expected of you given your upbringing and surroundings that's a great question I need to stop saying that phrase to start with um and I also think that I I I believe that I was a true Christian that I really believed um in Jesus that I really decided for myself to live out his calling to start studying his word his him being God and to start investing my entire life into that so moving to a town with my children where we know very few people to invest in a church because we believe we were called there to um, 
teach God's people his word, to you know, dedicate years of my life researching, reading and thinking and building up networks and friendships so that I could be as effective as I possibly can be along with my wife and children um, to serve God in this way, to see where he would lead us and being willing to go wherever he calls us to go. Realising that where we are now is probably just a stepping stone into another part of the country at some point, right? When he says, right, to this church, it's time to go. And yeah, beginning that journey, knowing that it's going to cost a lot for my family to move around loads and for us financially not being on a really good salary and um, trying to realise that, you know, a lot of friends I had stopped being my friend because I believed in God. And there's loads of things that I've sacrificed for this in the belief that I was following something that is true. Um, obviously, things have changed now, but at, looking back from where where I was and the place and the frame of mind I was in, I, I genuinely did believe it was everything. So how does that, I suppose there's a question for all of us, um, how does that reconcile with some of the, what is said about being a Christian in the Bible and what Jesus says? Because some of the stuff Jesus says is really hardcore. Um, well, actually, I suppose all of the stuff Jesus says is pretty hardcore. And um, we have already said before, not a lot of people live up to that. Um, and so if if the... <laughs> like if the qualification to be a Christian is A, but lots of Christians in quotes are operating menu B, like how do we define that then? I, I know I'm being a bit pedantic on the definition, but like I'm, the question I asked you is there, Sam, like Jesus talks about um, like to follow me, you've got to carry across, lay everything down, which I know you, you highlighted there. You you moved and sacrificed, so you've got to you've got to die to yourself. Um, then you've got the Beatitudes and the description of what it means to be a follower of God, um, which is, yeah, again, laying everything down, turning the cheek, carrying things twice for people who want them, giving money away if people ask for it. Um, all those sort of, all that language used in Matthew, I know it varies slightly across the Gospels. And then you listen to Paul talking about um, the way that, again, Christians should live and think of themselves as least and less than anybody else. Um and then he had James talking about in his his letters about again the way to live. If that's like what is a Christian, uh, how do we how do we reconcile the fact that that isn't seen um, a lot? And I'm not not sitting here to go let's define who and who isn't because I know we can't. But how how do we feel about that? Because I I obviously I've said before loads of times I find that really uncomfortable and I find that very hard to to make work yeah so for me i think i see those like glimpses of the radical hardcore like death to self things and then i also see all that other stuff that we're like supposed to put death to like the flesh if we're going you know proper quoting what they say like just creeping back and i think that's the thing that kind of I wrestle with personally when when I look at the world is I'm like I think people have these moments of 
like real connection with God, real like, yes, this is what I believe. This is actually what I'm doing. But I think a lot of the time people don't really consider what the reason why they're doing things. They just act. So we're a product of culture, of influences of the world in Christian terms. And it, it just is really easy to fall into rhythms that aren't actually to do with what you believe like all the time so there's loads of things that I do that I think are you know stupid and I think are bad ideas but I do them because it's easier and it's habitual rather than because it's actually what is in my heart and I think that's what the I see in the church in people that they have a real wanting to want to do it um, and then they just fall down slightly before the action point Okay, so just to clarify that really briefly, so people wanting to live for Christ fully, but then before they actually manage to quite get there, it, it kind of falls apart. Is that what you're saying, Helen? Yeah, yeah, but I think people do it with all sorts of things. So I'm trying. I've been trying to think of an example. The only thing I can think of is dieting. So bear with me a second. Um, so we have people who like genuinely believe that it's the right thing for them to be cutting out chocolate out of their life. They really believe that it's not like a you know fake thing they, they know that what they want to do is not eat chocolate to lose weight etc but then when it comes down to it there's chocolate in the cupboard they're hungry they're having a weak moment easier to just go to the cupboard have it and then feel regret over it and think I really did have a transformative moment when I woke up and I thought yes I'm going to be the person who loses weight diets it's going to be brilliant I am a health guru. And then what actually happens is it's quite hard to give stuff up. It's quite hard to live radically. It's quite hard to keep up the momentum. So then they have these moments of doing it. I mean, I actually think the whole of diet culture is crap, but it's the only example that I can think of. So bear with me with that. No, that's really helpful. And I guess I'd be really interested to know, obviously, like, I can work out what living radically would look like in a kind of first century context, but... What would you define as living radically in the 21st century? Well, I think it kind of depends on the person, the situation, because I think some things can be radical for a person, but not necessarily look radical from the outside. Like for some people, giving up chocolate could be radical. Um, I mean, that's stretching the analogy too far. But like some of the stuff you were talking about there, about moving cities and that kind of like sacrifice stuff for some people that's huge and for other people that's not really that big of a deal and yeah I guess you can't really tell what is sacrificial for a person until you really really know them well and there could be loads of people who are giving up stuff who are laying things down but you just didn't know that it was important in the first place I mean I, I do also think that there should be more of the people giving away everything and like laying their whole lives down to the poor, opening their homes. Absolutely, that should be happening. Um, and I would love to see more of it. I'd love to do it, really. It's just, you know, there's chocolate on the shelf and it's easier not to. It's, uh, yeah, certainly harder where the chocolate is there on the shelf. Do you think um, the cultural thing, it's easy, etc. I, I, I always come back to the church, it seems. Um, but given the we have a culture of very low bar Christianity. Um, do you think this means that people don't really know what it means to be a Christian? Um, not that we have a true definition yet anyway, that's on the point, but 
if if the model which I've, I've basically my entire time I've been in church the hands up model is what I've seen um, if your model is come and hear talk put your hand up you're a Christian if, if that's literally what's expected of you then it, it's not surprising that moving on from that is quite rare uh, so whereas as opposed to what Sam said at the beginning that in the first century and it happens today uh, we spoke to Shaft and Sam and he was talking about what he had to give up to become a Christian because he came from a Muslim background so his family abandoned him like that's a huge cost and so the expectation is is huge in that situation but the expectation when you are in the UK or the US and you're just a run-of-the-mill person is there's barely a cost and barely an expectation on you the expectation is for you to attend and generally give money i'm not being too cynical that's that's the reality the expectation is you to to arrive on a sunday possibly midweek give some money and serve in an area like that that is what christianity is so do you think the the lack of seeing like radical christianity even if it should be called radical christianity maybe it just should just be called christianity um do you think that has lots to do with the sort of the culture of christianity i'm going to jump in i think maybe um i think for, for me i think i don't know we're thinking too narrowly here i think we can look at other streams of christianity as well so in the way that we're kind of looking probably from quite a um, middle class evangelical kind of framework but we mentioned didn't we kind of to start with about Jehovah's witnesses the mormons or even you know roman catholic um high cv greek orthodox um, you know what whatever like the things that they believe are different to the things we believe so i guess I mean, even even you know Muslims or Buddhists or whatever, they all have their own belief system. So I guess it's it's kind of we're talking about what makes somebody a Christian. So what is it specifically about believing in Jesus, and where are the lines? Like if there's a grid that you're going to fall in, and you've got you know Muslims falling off the grid because they're not quite included, but Roman Catholics are, but Jehovah's Witnesses aren't. Like what what is it specifically about these things that don't actually bring somebody into the kingdom of God? Um, I guess is it. I mean, obviously, it, it probably is the doctrine in the way that you would just believe something rather than about doing anything. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'll kind of leave that open to you guys. What do you think it is that makes it different from you know, a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a, a middle class evangelical? I think you can make a lot of like, you, you can base it on doctrine and there's excellent things some complicated stuff where people have gone into that but for me it's really about whether you have a relationship and belief with in god so i don't think that necessarily does follow the boundaries of you know our terms like i'm sure that there are some jehovah's witnesses who have a belief like a real living live belief in god and a relationship um yeah and there's some people who call themselves christian who don't yeah because it's an interesting one isn't it because there is yes yeah, some doctrinal differences between the two but what you just yeah. pointed to there is that if you've got a um, middle class american who goes to a mega church in texas and they just arrive on a Sunday, rock up, drink the coffee, listen to the sermon, go home. Um, does the doctrinal differences make any difference in regard relating to a Jehovah's Witness who truly believes in Jesus, if not potentially wrongly, according to some people, 
but they are they are doing the stuff in quotes like who's right there like yeah what's actually correct following so i don't think it's about doing the stuff per se as much as the doing the stuff is a symptom of the heart change that is the important thing and like i definitely struggle with you know the doctrine of jehovah's witnesses and mormons and stuff like i find it hard to find it logical or make sense but i don't i wouldn't want to say that it is very arrogant to assume that you're right about stuff that's really complicated yep that's uh that's true and we do and it I, all the time <laughs> yeah, well i've always kind of been been okay with being like i don't know everything and i could very much be wrong about various stuff um i don't feel like i but i think i think it's okay for there to be a lot of debate about a lot of gray areas and there be still truth in the which for me is that you know jesus god and the savior of the world and like that's the sufficient key point for me and then some of the other stuff it's just like well i don't i, don't, I think we can get distracted by it rather than and and let it kind of bog you down in a way that means that you it stops you living your life properly or full of faith so it's, yeah, that's it's interesting because oh. if if sorry if the devil's real he also believes that Jesus is God and the saviour of the world. Does that mean that he's saved? Was that directed at me or Helen? It, it, either. It's just, a, it's just an observation. Like if that's the, the core doctrine. Well, because the, yeah. the, uh, the flip of that would be following Christ is the key, and he would most definitely not be following Christ, would he? He would be uh, just believing well, no, that Christ was real. That's, that's actually quite a, a medieval interpretation of Satan. If you look at Job or other interpretations of the accuser, it is someone who is under God's control and is having to respond to him and make sure he's got approval before he does things. So he's definitely following God in Job or these other books. He's got a, a purpose that he's about. Uh, yeah, but you, you get the difference of what I mean. Um, as in following Christ's example to live is different to being under the rule of God. So yes, yeah, the, the devil in Job is very much under his thumb as in yeah, he has to come and ask permission to do things. Um, but so, yeah, it's a very different, but what I mean is if a Christian is someone who is laying down their life for Jesus and following him, then that wouldn't fit, would it? Believing in Christ. So to be fair, actually, that's not actually a bad point um, and quite a controversial one, but good one. So, yeah, the example there is that the devil could not be a Christian, even though he believes in Jesus being the son and God all in one trinity, um, if he does. There, because he doesn't follow Christ. So therefore, if people believe in Jesus but don't follow his example, can they be a Christian? <laughs> That's so terrible, but interesting. Not interesting. I'm going to use a different word. In fact, because I've used that too much. That is fascinating. There we go. Well done on finding a different word, Dave. We're very proud of you. Um, so for me, I think the difference there is, like not wanting anything to do with God's will or plan. So like being in kind of opposition to God that's, would be, yeah. That, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because not, I'm not literally not trying to put you in a corner, Helen. I'm not going to get to you in this one. I'm just carrying on from that's it. Right. Because in James, he specifically says that 
like friendship with the world is enmity with God. So it's going against God's will to be friendly with the world. Yet what it means by that is obviously desiring the things of the world. Um, and it's what Jesus is tempted with by the devil is, is like fame and power and everything. Um, and so friendship with the world and desire for worldly things is enmity in opposition to God's will. Yet we all do that all the time. That's really interesting as well. It's not interesting. It is compelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, for me, that comes back to the chocolate thing, though, that it's like, what's the, why do I do what I don't want to do? The, the worst sentence in the Romans. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I flip and love it because I think it encapsulates most of my existence. It's like, <laughs> literally, why am I doing this thing that I don't want to do? Uh, but I think that's what it's talking about. Like, it's even having, like, having enmity with the world is like a, in a conflict. I mean, we're kind of getting into spiritual warfare here, but I think that kind of is partially what it is in terms of like, the push and pull of wanting to be gods and be a follower of Jesus and also the world being as it is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that difficulty it's the it's sort of sanctification part of salvation, isn't it? The ongoing sanctification of. Yeah. But I think the point is that you have the desire to try. However buried that desire is that, that it's there in comparison to say the devil who, you know, it's not all that fussed. <laughs> the devil, not all that yeah. fussed. Um, that's a description. That's one of his many names. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I quite I find the fact he hasn't actually got a name in the Bible quite fun, um, even though we constantly give him a name. Yeah, we kind of make it like Voldemort. Uh, the, this made me think about, as we're talking, I watched a documentary on uh, religious art, um, as you do, if you're like me. And um, one of it was this town in Spain, which name has now escaped me. I might start Googling it while I'm speaking. Um, uh, where they... Uh, Mary Statue Spain um, is the one. Yeah, I found it. Uh, the Virgin of Montserrat. There we go. Uh, it is. That's no. That's not the right one. You're the wrong person. Um, I'll find it in a bit. Anyway, is this like incredibly gaudy um, Mary, full of gold and splendor? Um, <laughs> and every year she comes out at Easter. And people are overwhelmed, crying spiritual experience of Mary coming out. And it's this statue of Mary, especially dressed. And it's literally like burdened with gold and glitter. Um, and that's obviously Catholicism. Mary is a big deal. Um, Protestantism, everyone thinks Mary is not a big deal. But they pray to Mary and they pray to saints. And this is part of Christianity. For, I know I'm simplifying this, obviously. But that is part of Christianity. It's not at all odd. I know this is thinking slightly back to the doctrinal part of it, but for for many, Christianity is praying to saints and Mary, um, which for other parts of Christianity is like pure idolatry, like literally main commandments not to do. Um, but 
Yeah, again, how does that work? Is that covered by grace? Like, if you are a person who's born and raised in a heavy Catholic area, that's South America, um, and that's your entire experience of God is, is through this idea of saints and Mary and um, confession and high Catholicism. And the idea of like a personal relationship with Jesus is is not so explicit. And you can have religious experiences seeing a Mary gold-clad statue of Mary walking through, well, not walking, but being carried through the city. Like, how, how does that work in this, again, like that angle of it? Well, honestly, I just, I, I, I struggle with that generally in that I just feel like the number of times, it just feels like an exact replica of the golden calf situation. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really rectified that in a way other than to say that I'd don't think that you should be praying to saints or having giant golden Marys. So we've established one thing, being a Christian is not having giant golden Marys. (laughs) And that the devil is not that fast yet. He's not that fast, but he might be fast about giant golden Marys. Sam, you're you're, um, like traditionally quite a conservative Christian in your past. Um, I mentioned you have quite strong opinions on this, or at least you did, uh, because from your background you would have like frowned at this considerably wouldn't you frowned at this being the devil not being fussed or uh, no the Jesus. idea of gold clad marys and um, praying to saints and mary and all that sort of stuff well, that sort of stuff um there's a really old tradition and i'm going to butcher it now i'm sure about praying to the saints and the idea is that um they would there before god so your prayers go to them and they can then petition for you in front of God or for those that have gone and died. Um, so that that's where the kind of the idea of, of praying to saints comes from. And, and Mary being one of the first kind of Christian saints due to birth in Jesus is, is quite a big deal um, in the Roman Catholic Church. So it's the idea of praying to the, to the mother of Christ, the one that God chose to impregnate um, with himself and then, you know, birth salvation is the world like she is the one of the top saints so i think that that's why people care about mary so much from that tradition i believe and i could be wrong there um i think the idea a, of, i didn't yeah. read where that came from so that's helpful say that again sorry just that's helpful context um, i think yeah and i think for these places like a lot of these statues i mean so I've, i was in a greek a greek orthodox church in 2011 12 um, and i was like literally shocked as i walked through this like rubbled street and there's awful buildings into this church and there was just gold everywhere in this church and i was like how can they live in depravity and then this one building is just caped in gold and you know these people wearing these ornate robes their long beards and reading and there was incense and there was money that's going to be spent on stuff but I think on, on reflection for it, I just kind of felt that, and this could be my interpretation, but um, these people believe that God is real. They believe that they're able to commune with God and that God's church is his bride. And being able to invest in his church by being you know, physically there, uh, giving of their time and resource, um, ensuring that, that that thing is as praised as possible is, is almost like I mentioned before about believing people believing that they were then tabernacles of God like people have then kind of it feels like put that upon the church like the church is the place where you experience god right you won't probably won't see miracles on tomorrow morning when you're on the commute to work or as we are working from home like you're not going to suddenly you know fix a broken 
um, as you're typing away for work because miracles don't tend to happen like that, tend to happen in church. So it, it seems to be that church is a place where God's presence comes and they want to make those places as special as possible. So it's almost like, I don't know, you'd find like a spring out in the desert and there'd be um, these days lots of things around it to protect it because um, other people just come and trample on it and get water and do whatever they want and mess it up and leave rubbish and stuff. These days they are kind of like protected areas because of the importance of that area. So I think with these statues and with these churches, it's much more about the importance of those things for what it means rather than it itself being important. Like, I don't think the building really matters or the gold really matters. What matters is people believe they experience God there and they believe that these saints represent their partitions to God for themselves and their family and those that have died. And I think that's why it's really important for them. I just, um, yeah, uh, it's an area where I was just asking because I just imagine in your previous self, you would have yeah, dismissed it as all a bit crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, putting words in your mouth, but never mind, standard. Um, I find that interesting as well because I find it fascinating, compelling, entrancing, enthralling, engaging, that uh, one of the times I have had a spiritual experience in a way like none other, if you want to use that term or felt the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, was in the Catholic Church in Barcelona, which Catholic Cathedral in Barcelona, uh, which I wasn't expecting. I might have said it before, but that is a incense burning, covered in idols and um, statues in gold. And it's really dark inside. You go through, it's really dark. It's just candles and incense and all the garb. And it was profound in that building. It was a, it was like, it felt, it felt profound. There's no other way of saying it. It's almost like you feel the presence of something more than just a building. Um, and I've been to many cathedrals and many places, modern churches, old churches, little churches, big churches, and have only once also experienced that feeling, which was in the basement church that Schaff used to go to, um, which was just in a basement of someone's house. And I walked down and felt the same experience, which was this heavy presence. Um, and I, but the basement didn't surprise me because that is my, what I think Christianity is, is just an insignificant room somewhere. But the Catholic church in Barcelona surprised me a lot because yes, it was full of Mary's and Peter's and Paul's and gold and heavy incense. And yet it felt more profound than many evangelical churches who would claim to be spirit filled and spirit led. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting kind of where where you get affected by something. Um, reading a book at the moment called Waking Up by a guy called Sam Harris, who I know I mentioned before on the podcast, but um, in that book, he talks about um, him sitting on the mount where Jesus would have given the um, the Beatitudes from Matthew. Um, and he's looking out of Islam, there's tourists with their cameras and they're walking around taking pictures and stuff. And he's sat there um, meditating in a non-spiritual way. And um, he realizes that he's in this tranquil state of meditation um, where he's lost the kind of the eye within him and he's aware that he is just his consciousness and it lasts but moments, but it's kind of blissful. And then he kind of stands up and walks away from this kind of sweltering place and realizing he's had a really profound moment. Um, and he then says, you know, what would have happened if that person had been a Christian or a Muslim or whatever, like they would attribute it to their God, they'd attribute it to the thing that they think it is rather than realizing that there are loads of processes going on within us subconsciously not consciously whatever there are loads of things happening within us 
um, that can affect how we think and feel, even if we don't think we're thinking like that. Um, uh, we're going off tangents about what is it, why it's a question. I'll finish really quickly with this, but uh, you know, there's, there's been loads of great experiments done where you actually realise that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere um, have are, are conscious independently of each other. Like they are actually two different things which are conscious apart from themselves and are able to communicate in their own way. So you can build experiments where you can actually make the left hand and the right hand fight or say different things. Like your voice will say one thing, but your hand will spell out something else because within you, you are not just you there's lots of different things going on there's at least two consciousnesses that we're aware of and it's this idea that we just tend to stick in with what we know the comfortable kind of here in the actual presence when there are other things within us going on that we just aren't aware of and then we attribute those things to god or feelings when actually it could be another element of us experiencing it so i guess kind of coming back to that like what makes someone a christian um another question that sam harris asked in his book waking up you know what if the less left hemisphere of someone's brain believes in Jesus and wants to be a Christian, but the right hemisphere doesn't and is another religion or an atheist or whatever, or just not sure that how do you, how do you know what that person is and is not saved? I guess that, that kind of breaks down to kind of working out, you know, is, is it a belief or a feeling or a way of living? Is it physical? Is it mental? Like what, what is it specifically that will make someone um, be included in the family of God? Is, is that what's going on with you, Sam? Are you, um, are you one half Christian, one half not? And is that why you call yourself an agnostic atheist? I've, I've explained that phrase enough times to, uh, to, not, to not do it again now. Um, it's, it's right. I, I think I cut it out the other episodes. So, you know. Oh, okay. Just have to do it again for you now. I'm not going to. All I'm, all I'm going to say is I am definitely searching because if there is something here, I want to find it. I want to grab it. I want to see it. Um, I don't at the moment, but I really want to. And that's the, the kind of clock crux of it for me so that raises an interesting point as well like so because you have people who claim to be christians who aren't longing and searching for god and someone like yourself sam who claims they're not a christian but is longing and searching for god so where's the flipping boundary line <laughs> because like you know what i mean like for, again if someone is in born and raised in iran and is diligently seeking god but is all their experience is Islam and that's their only opportunity because they are in a strict Islamic country where there's no other option. I know that could be argued because people become Christians, but they, they, they born, they're raised in Islam. They follow Islam because they weren't diligently seeking God and they die. How does that work? I know we're getting off what is a Christian, but that is always thrown me as a question because how does that flipping work? Like, yeah, when, when the, what happens there? So there's this part in um, the last book in the Narnia series. What's it called? It's literally called The Last Battle. The Last the, Battle, the last yeah. Battle. Um, which has been the only thing that has satisfied my longing for an answer to that question ever, Dave, is when they're all running and they're all running at the end. And then there's people there that are from the different country. I can't remember what it was called, in the, but the, not Narnians. They were like, everything that you did in the name of this other thing, who was not Aslan, you did it like, because of your intent. I'm taking it for me, basically, is what Aslan said. And that's the only, I like, I, I honestly don't know how biblically based that is, but like that kind of felt right to me. Like it felt like, the God that I understand as being loving 
and wanting um, his children to, to love him. And um, that, that felt like a good answer to me. And also a profound experience reading that book. I don't think I've ever actually read really really it. Sorry, go on, Sam, you actually speak. You really should. I loved it more than any of the others, actually. I think I just sat there and cried while I was reading it. I, I need to read them. I've got them on my bookshelf and I've never actually independently read them. I had them read to me, some of them. Um, that's it. Anyway, that is a thing. Sam, you're about to say something that was probably more important than whether I read The Last Battle or not. It was it was, it was was on the same theme. It was just going to be a couple of things. One, I'm reading Narnia to my, my eldest at the moment and he's really enjoying it, which is nice. And um, there's a really interesting bit in The Last Battle where at the very end, there's like this portal or door that people are going in to and some are walking away from. And there's this bit where C.S. Lewis says, um, through Aslan, you know, says, you know, look at these beasts here as they walk away. And these animals that used to be able to talk and used to be able to live in this kind of like um, almost like a higher level way um, are walking away and becoming mute beasts once again. Like they've, they've lost the ability to speak, have lost their essence as they are unable to get into the kind of the place that Aslan has called his people to. It's, it's really fascinating like kind of analogy of and like C.S. Lewis building this within screw tape letters and not screw tape letters sorry um the um great divorce um this idea of hell basically where someone is without the essence of god in them and that is what hell is it's the living within your debased nature rather than living within the divinity of god which i find really interesting and i kind of think that that feeds into this kind of idea like is it is it is the question we're asking what is a uh, what is a christian or is the question we're asking what makes someone saved? Because I, I mean, I don't think we're going to get any answers, but I think they're they're two different things. I think you know, you you look at the thief on the cross. I mentioned this before, where you know Jesus says, "You know, today you'll be with me in paradise." And this person hasn't isn't going to ever be able to live any sort of life that will define them as a Christian. They've just said, "Remember me when you enter your kingdom," um, and and that's it. And then that's all we hear about them. And then obviously they both die, and Jesus is then raised from the dead in the Bible. Um, and Jesus says to him, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise, which is a very, very powerful metaphor of this person being brought into God's kingdom. You know, it's like this, like this animal was able to talk, is actually able to get in through that door. Um, so this person's saved, theoretically, in this instance. But, you know, what makes someone a Christian and what makes someone saved? Are, are they two different questions? I, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree. They are almost two different questions. And your yep. question is more important in some ways. Um just as an aside, The Great Divorce is a fantastic take on heaven and hell. Um, I love that book. The idea that your head is people moving into their own self- selfishness and how um, hell is like an unpopulated city because everyone keeps trying to move away from each other um, because they want to be in their own. And so it just keeps expanding and they get lonelier and lonelier and smaller and smaller and smaller. It's profound. Sorry, Helen, I um, interjected, didn't I? No, all I was going to say is that I think that's a better question to you, Sam, about what what makes people saved rather than what makes people a Christian. I think Christian has too much cultural baggage, which I think is quite a lot of the stuff that you guys have talked about in the episodes that I've listened to that I wasn't on is mostly about the baggage of the church that I think is really harmful. Yeah, it's... Um... I would agree um, because there's, but the thing is when you, if you look at salvation in the New Testament, you sort of just go through and try to decide what it means. It's vastly different because you've got Jesus saying, just follow me. 
or those who call on my name will be saved. And then you've got the thief on the cross. I think the thief on the cross is sometimes slightly misrepresented in my view. It is only my view. But um, people say, oh, he, he only had to say a word, which in some ways is true, but all he had was his word. He literally gave up everything he had left to follow Jesus, um, which is a lot more profound than simply saying something. By that, I mean his only power he had left in his life was his voice. That's all he had left. He was, if he, if it's true, Sam, he was nailed to a cross, unable to move, suffocating slowly and in terrible agony. The only thing he had, the only power he had left to have on do anything was to speak. Um, and he, in that story, chose to use his one thing, his one value, his one significance to declare Jesus. Um, so I, I think sometimes that is a bit misused as the idea of, oh, you can just say and you're fine. Whereas it's almost like not what's happening because his choice was to hurl insults to Jesus or follow him. And that was his thing he had to give up. That was him laying everything down or selling everything to buy the field. That was his last ounce, one of his last breaths. So the idea of suffocating slowly, being crushed by your own body weight. And that was his choice. I think that's much more significant story than we sometimes give it credit for. Yeah, just linking back to the salvation thing is it is an interesting, interesting question because again, if you take Revelation at the very end, the New Jerusalem descends onto Earth. That's the language. And people are in the city, but it describes the people who are outside, walking, lost. Um, they haven't been annihilated. That doesn't say they're in torment or distrust. It just means that it just says they're outside the city. But the gates are always open. Um, so that's where lots of C.S. Lewis's and analogies and things come from that part of Revelation. The idea that the doors are open and you can come in, yet you're choosing not to, which is um, trajectory sort of theology, I'm not sure if that's the official term, is it? But the idea is that the path and the choices you make in this life put you on a trajectory that lasts into eternity. So if you choose selfishness and self-gratification and these things throughout your life, that is where you'll keep going. Whereas if you start to choose selflessness and self-sacrifice, that is the trajectory you'll go, which links in a bit into what you're talking about, Helen, with the Romans verse, that all the things I want to do and the trying to do and the dieting analogy uh, if the trajectory of your life and your choices are working towards selflessness and self-sacrifice and godliness, then that trajectory will carry you into salvation, whatever that looks like in the future. Um, so, yeah. I really wish I'd come up with a better analogy than dieting because I hate diet culture. But, you know. I think, it's a, I think it's a really profound analogy because the thing is, like, dieting... I know where you're coming from because the culture on dieting is terrible. Like, hey, take these pills and you'll be thin. No, that's um, one a terrible thing. But dieting doesn't just have to be losing weight. Dieting is a decision about living a healthy way because if you want to put on weight or build muscle, you have to change your diet. And I've had to do that because if I'm, I've been trying to put on weight and you have to yeah, change and consider what you eat, you cut down on your sugar because it's not particularly good for you and you eat things that are actually better for your body. You eat more sensibly and you don't eat trash like there is a value to dieting i know what you're coming from with the culture but it's a good analogy because it is a everyday decision i have to get up early and make a breakfast that's actually good for me and not just pour a bowl of cereal which is really pouring a bowl of cereal is really easy because it's just 
two items, isn't it? Cereal and milk, or not even milk. It depends what sort of like liquid you need with it. Um, could just be eat out the eight out of the pack like a hooligan. Uh, but um, <laughs> but yeah, like to make good decisions. Like if you're trying to put on weight and muscle, you need to go. Oh, actually, I need to make an omelet or something, or have like granola or nuts or like something with protein in it um, and fruit and things. It's, it's a decision, and so I think it is a good analogy. The idea of faith and salvation that if Jesus is called you to follow Him, then it is a a daily decision to lay everything down um, and more yeah. than more than just oh, i'm just going to lay this thing down and it's no it's it, everything about yourself and it is a um a daily choice yeah i guess i just think that it is completely coherent to like really believe something and then still act contrary to that belief because of all that other baggage and because it's easier not to um i guess that's all kind of meant by it that it's completely like you can like genuinely, genuinely believe something and still go against it and be a hypocrite. Like, I think you can do that politically. I think you could do that personally, you know, addiction, diets. It's all kind of like, I think we're very complicated and messy. And I think lots of belief stuff comes from intellectual things, like, as well as emotional stuff, but that doesn't necessarily translate to other parts of our being and our life in a way that we'd want it to. As we wrap up, Helen, Sam, anything you want to add before we we say goodbye to the listener and we move on? So for me, I think this has been something I think about quite a lot. What would it take for me to come back into the fold? Like, What would I have to um, say or do or agree to to be able to class myself as a christian or um, a believer again and it's not just because i want it like i want to believe something that's true and i want to have good reasons for why i believe something and i think at times i've, I've got those and other times i haven't and it's, it's a really complicated journey but you know, if you were to take a graph and, and scatter people throughout time throughout their belief systems um, you're going to get a whole host of different people that have tried to sort sort of come to grips with a god They've tried to work out what is the, the, the thing that is behind all of this, um, if there is such a thing. And yeah, I guess the question comes down to like, you know, my folks and other people would say you would literally have to say that Jesus is God in flesh who died and rose again and did so for your sins that you can have a relationship with, with the Father. And that means you're saved. And that is the kind of bedrock upon which it's all built. Um, other people I know would say, you know, you just need to be searching for that spiritual experience or that that bit. And um, yeah, I think these things are really challenging because we don't have any answers. We don't we don't know what makes someone a Christian. We don't know what makes someone saved. Uh, we can infer things and we can hope things. And um, yeah, it, there aren't any easy answers. I think that's partly why this is so exciting, as sad as that is for me. Um, I, I find this stuff really interesting. Um, really fascinating and really gripping because it pulls me into this narrative of myself like what am I doing why am I here where am I going what does it mean for people um, at my old place of work um, why are they not living in the way that I think they should be living or is that just me putting my own agenda upon them so there's so many things that feed out from this but I think this really is like part of the bedrock upon which these tendrils shoot out and kind of deliver actual meaning um, yeah it's, it's a really really cool subject and I'm sure we'll come back to it time and time again any closing remarks on yeah so i was kind of thinking almost contrary to you sam and that i think we spend a lot of time trying to define things and 
trying to like put labels on other people whereas I've kind of gotten to this place where like it's not really up to me to decide or try and work out what's going on with someone else whether they're saved not saved whether they're Christian not Christian whether what they do is or isn't a sin for me it's about what's going on in my life spiritually and what's like what is it a sin for me what isn't a sin for me what it brings me closer to god in my belief system what just distracts me and i think the church has spent quite a lot of time getting people to judge outwardly rather than getting people to focus on themselves and and go through all this stuff you know in their own heads like do i really believe what i believe do i am i acting out what i believe like what is really going on i think people should definitely be thinking about that but i think we almost spend too much time trying to put other people into boxes rather than focusing on ourselves wonderful so thank you for joining us as always it's been wonderful having you uh, it's been wonderful speaking to both you sam and you helen um always good to have you on helen you certainly bring much needed insight and balance to mine and Sam's rambling. So to the listener, as we wrap up, what is interesting is there's this, this desire for godliness seems to be a common thread throughout the entire thing. This, this desire that who we are now and our intentions, our desires are not necessarily the right thing. And the intention of trying to follow God's way is what potentially makes you a Christian the debates around doctrine and the things you say and the things you do in this specific X, Y, and Z, which confirms you as a Christian or not, suddenly becomes a very dangerous territory, as we talked about. So uh, if, if you put a hand up on a Sunday, someone would claim you're a Christian, yet are you, um, compared to someone who's never put their hand up on a Sunday or said a special prayer, yet is devoted to trying to follow Jesus and giving everything up for him. Um, compared with someone who has been misled potentially in what doctrine and what is correct, yet they follow it with all their heart. Where is the boundary line? And it is an interesting discussion. And it's an area where it almost needs a lot of grace for people um, and less tribalism to say that this person is in and this person is out. Those people over there do it wrong and we do it right. It raises the question though, around losing your faith because if we can't decide what christianity is truly then how can you lose that if your desire is to follow god and seek god then surely you're still on the right path whereas if you are just going along because you feel like you should then are you still on the path even though you're part of the club we'll see you next week um have a good week and it's been lovely to have you Well, that's been really interesting. Oh, no, go away. Go home. <laughs> All of you go home. Um, uh, I'll start I am again. home. I've been home uh, since March. Okay, I'll start again. <laughs> that, should be in the, uh, that should be in the outro. Just so you know. It's going to put it at the end. After the outro, I'm just going to put that in. So I can do absorbing, engrossing, fascinating, riveting, gripping, compelling, compulsive, spellbinding, captivating, engaging, enthralling, entrancing.
um, any of those. 